Welcome to a joint production of the Expert Speak from the Florida Psychiatric Society and the Palm Beach County Medical Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Larry Bush practices infectious disease medicine in Florida, and with the ongoing concerns with the Ebola epidemic, he agreed kindly to explain and discuss this condition. Sir, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Although we are going to speak about the Ebola virus directly and the problems that people seem to be facing, I think it would be very good in a very brief manner to spend a moment differentiating the difference between a virus, a bacteria, and a fungus. If you could do that as a background, please. Sure. Bacteria are probably the original oldest living organisms on the planet. They predated us, they'll outdate us, and most of them as beneficial to our health. It's only when they tend to invade our body in the wrong place that they cause disease or what we would call invasive infection. Now, bacteria are free-living and can live on surfaces and water and soil for long periods of time unless the environment harms. So they're different than viruses. Viruses can only live inside a living being, whether it be an animal or a fish, mammals, or humans are the ones we're talking about because they need our mechanisms, our way of reproducing and living. We come in contact with viruses often, usually from person to person or from other living beings, which is different than bacteria. And the other differences with viruses are that we have limited ways of detecting them because in the field of infectious disease, we like to be able to isolate the organism and grow it, whereas with viruses, that's difficult. So we depend on serologic tests to make diagnosis. And the other main difference is that we have very limited medications to treat viruses, although most vaccines that we've developed to date are against viruses or preventing viruses. Fungi are different. They're called eukaryotes, and eukaryotes have an independent nucleus and they're organisms that can live in the environment regardless of the host, a whole different group of infectious agents. We seem to be having a epidemic of issues around new viruses in the last couple of years. And we can go back to the big one of maybe 30, 40 years ago, which was, of course, HIV, AIDS. Now we're hearing a lot about Ebola. Where did it come from? What's it all about? Ebola virus is one of the groups that we cause hemorrhagic viruses because in the worst case scenario, people tend to bleed after an infection with these viruses. Ebola is named actually after the Ebola River, and the first epidemic was diagnosed in the Sudan and Zara, which is now the Democratic Republic of the Congo, in 1976. So it's an unusual virus called a phylovirus, and it seems to come and go. It's a mysterious organism. And in fact, as you know, books and movies, Outbreak, The Hot Zone, have been written about this virus because it's so frightening. Nobody really knows where it came from. We know it's transmitted by close contact, but most importantly, it has an extremely high mortality rate. In fact, of the five different types of Ebola virus, one called the Zare strain had a 90% mortality in the outbreak in Zare in previous decades. That happens to be the strain that's permeating right now in, in Africa. It's carried by fruit bats, and fruit bats are a delicacy in parts of Africa. But it also infects primates, and since you can get it by direct contact, primates that are infected can transmit it to humans. So that's what we know about it. And as you know, the outbreak that's going on now is the largest in, in, that's been recorded. And also what's different about this outbreak is it's the furthest west in Africa there's ever been one. And in fact, one patient actually got on a plane and went to Nigeria and was diagnosed in Nigeria. 
And now we've brought two infected Americans back to the United States for care. So it's the first time an actively infected Ebola patient has entered the United States. If someone is immunocompromised, if they have another condition which makes them more vulnerable to infections, are they equally more vulnerable to this? Is the immunocompromising effect across all infectious diseases? The immunocompromised state probably doesn't have a great effect on the Ebola virus, although anybody who has comorbidities or a weakened immune system may have less of a chance of responding well. But it's not particularly associated with immunocompromised uh, individuals. In fact, in the current outbreak and previous outbreak, it was usually healthy, younger humans who were attending to sicker people. When you said that it is transmitted by contact, is that merely touching, or does there have to be the transmission of either a body fluid, sneezing on somebody, coughing on somebody? What do you mean by contact? As far as we can determine, any secretion, any bodily secretion, whether obviously blood or urine, stool, vomitus, sweat, tears, saliva, semen, cervical secretions. Is there any way that people can protect themselves from it? We see in the television sets, obviously, the people suited up in hazmat-type suits, but someone just walking down the street, we would have no idea. Well, the protection from that is twofold. They, they really need close contact with one of these secretions, so almost touching the patient or living directly in the environment with them. It's not a respiratory spread virus as far as we know. Therefore, it's a limited spread for people who aren't in extremely close contact. So just walking down the street and having to pass somebody would not be a way of getting infected. The other difference between the transmission of Ebola and other viruses is that you're really not contagious until you're ill. The incubation period appears to be between 2 and 21 days with an average of 8 days. And it's not until the patient actually exhibits symptoms, so they're ill, are they contagious. So the chance of having being in contact with somebody who's incubating it but not ill and therefore getting it before you know they're ill or coming into contact with them is, is almost non-existent. So once we have an ill person, we just need to take strict measures, which are, as you can see with Emory University now, with the American doctor who was transported back from Western Africa, is this extreme contact and respiratory isolation. We hear about the number of people who die, which is terribly sad, of course. But the people who survive, what is different if we know about the ones who survive? Better supportive treatment, just lucky, that's not much of a scientific answer, more uh, their immunosystem is stronger. Do we have a sense of what is the difference between those who survive versus those who do not? I don't think we have an exact reason why one survives and one doesn't. The current epidemic appears to have an approximately 60% mortality rate. But you have to keep in mind that the mortality is occurring in, in the third world countries where the supportive medical system may not be as robust as is in the United States. And people tend to die from an organ system injury that maybe cannot be supported in those environments who have underlying comorbidities where a damage to their kidneys or lungs or heart would maybe not be as tolerable as somebody who is more well to begin with. And I think it has more to do with the environment where these people are being cared for, not to say that it's bad care, but it's not as sophisticated as it would be in the United States or in 
European country. In preparation for talking to you today, I came across one comment, and I can't prove that it's true or not, but it struck me. And it said that some of the needles that were being used in the third world countries were disinfected. They weren't sterilized. Something as simple as that could make a big difference, I gather. Oh, absolutely. Uh, just medical equipment that's reusable makes a big difference. And as you know, with the HIV epidemic, it's part of the reason why third world countries suffer so much from it, because the transmissibility is not altered by things that we take for common, uh, such as tossing or throwing away used medical equipment. Because I can remember when I was in medical school that we actually did sterilize needles, we're taking them and putting them in a big box and it was steamed and sprayed and whatever, but I don't know that anybody really does that anymore. A new one, which is absolutely sterile. Simple little difference like that. Absolutely. Surgical equipment still in the United States is autoclave, but we have very good measures of proving that it is sterile and that there are no living organisms on that equipment after the sterilization process. Is there a general sense about how long the infection takes if a person lives after diagnosis, two weeks, three weeks? Is that generally considered that they're out of the danger zone? Correct. 21 days after exposure to somebody who has Ebola, you're felt to be free of contacting the disease. People who actually have Ebola, it's been shown that for even up to six or nine weeks in steaming, interestingly enough, the virus may persist. So theoretically, secretions in people who have recovered may still harbor the virus. I don't know if we have enough data yet to say how long one can be contagious for, because that would take sophisticated viral PCRs and culture techniques to prove that the virus was still in secretion. But I would assume that it probably could still be transmitted from somebody, even though they're well, for several weeks after they recovered. So the people at Emory, I would imagine that this would include anything that the patients touch and even bowel and bladder products would be burned or however they're destroyed because the virus could still be there. It's that serious of, a, of an isolation. That's correct. And also since we have limited information on knowing how long the organism may persist in some of these secretions after a patient recovers and they're asymptomatic, I imagine the people who are brought back to this country will have their body secretion, their waste products, as you stated, handled in a very sterile fashion for many weeks. Interesting. Now, we keep hearing that the primary treatment right now is supportive. We don't really have any antiviral medications to help them. What, what is really meant by supportive treatment? Supportive treatment means that when the virus has caused other organ systems to be harmed, to be able to support that until they repair themselves. For instance, if somebody goes into renal failure, we have dialysis. If somebody gets a secondary infection because of some breakdown of their body, we have antibiotics, fluid, and electrolyte replacement. Since this is a hemorrhagic virus and a large proportion of patients start to bleed, blood transfusion or clotting factor administration. After that, if the body can just withstand the multi-system insult. So obviously it would be a rather intensive medical intervention, but as you said, and I'm now talking off the top of my head, how interesting if that is the reason why people might survive here as opposed to a third world country. It's just basic medical care, nothing fancy, no new medications, just basic medical care. 
interesting difference. That's correct. If you look at an analogy of the largest infectious outbreak that led to human death, which is the Spanish flu in 1918, where it's estimated 100 million people, both in Europe and the United States, died, the difference between influenza then and now are what we would take for granted as simple things. Most people who die of influenza die of secondary bacterial pneumonias. We now have antibiotics, vaccines, and ventilators. And the other thing they die of is getting the virus. And now we have influenza vaccine that's recommended for everybody who's over six months old. So those seem like simple things to us. That was the difference between the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic, all that death, and what goes on now. Is there any sense of where we are in terms of developing an intervention or even a vaccine? Sometimes I hear the story, and it's a sad thing to hear, but there aren't enough people who suffer from this for a massive vaccine to be developed because vaccines cost a fortune to develop. But what are we doing, to the best of your knowledge, in terms of developing interventions for this? Well, as far as I know, there's no vaccine even nearly developed that could be useful. And, and as you said, it would have to be used mostly in parts of the world where the virus has had epidemics. And financially, companies who make these vaccines would not be very interested in that, except for a humanitarian point of view. If you just think of it for a moment, malaria is the number one infectious disease in the world, and we don't have a vaccine for that. As far as medications for Ebola virus, it falls under the category of filovirus, and I know there are biotech companies actively looking at antiviral medications that may have some effect on Ebola specifically and filoviruses in general, none of which have come to trials that have any significant findings yet. I would imagine if there was a larger crisis, not that this one isn't, sometimes compassionate use these medications are released. One of the things also that just pops up is that, by and large, at least for people here in the United States, these viruses belong to other countries. It's over there. It's not here. And I think there is a great, shall we say, assumption that the CDC and many of our excellent medical organizations will figure something out, you know, will figure something out. And it may make a certain complacency about infectious diseases and these new viruses, because we seem to be getting new viruses every couple of years. I, just your thoughts on that, please. And that's true. If you just think of two other unusual epidemics that are sort of being overshadowed by Ebola because of the emotion that goes with Ebola, MERS, M-E-R-S, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, which is really in the Arabian Peninsula, has spread to Europe. It's a coronavirus, which is easily transmitted respiratory virus, particularly amongst healthcare workers. But there have been three people diagnosed in the United States. Now, that particular virus, you can be contagious and not very ill and get on an airplane and travel. It would be unusual for somebody with Ebola to be well enough to travel. And as I said before, they're not contagious until they're ill. There is an example of one that vaccines are being looked at, but we have no medications that are effective. It's a similar virus of what was happening in China with SARS a decade or so ago. Now we have chikungunya virus, which originally was diagnosed with Tanzania. It comes from a Bantu word that means bend up because it causes your joints to hurt so much that you bend them. 
and it used to be mostly seen in Africa and Asia, found its way recently to Central America and the Caribbean. And now we have a lot of cases in the United States, people who have entered the country from the Caribbean and Central America, therefore mosquitoes here can obtain the virus from those infected people and infect Americans who have not traveled. In fact, here in Florida, we've had a few cases of people who have not traveled who have chicken kunga virus, which is similar to dengue. Two viruses that cause much morbidity, not very much mortality, if any at all, but are easily spread by mosquitoes. No vaccines, no medication. So you're right. Americans are complacent. They think these are diseases elsewhere. You have to remember the majority of the world lives elsewhere, and travel is now global, and mosquitoes have no boundaries. Are these new viruses merely mutations of older viruses? Where do they come from? Or perhaps they were here 100 or 200 years ago, and they just came, did their thing, and disappeared for a while. That's interesting. They're viruses that have been around for epics. And what changes is most of them are not, are not able to be transmitted to humans because of specific physiologic receptors. So they've existed in animals. For instance, the MERS virus, one of the hosts, the camel in the Arabian Peninsula. But the virus has adapted. It's a coronavirus, which causes respiratory infections in humans. Just like bird flu, other viruses, if that particular strain of virus mixes with a human strain of a similar virus, it now can pick up the mechanism to be able to directly invade humans. It's almost like creating a new child who's a mixture of both parents. Here's a virus that's a mixture of both viruses. And what it inherits from the human virus is the ability to infect humans. And that's what happens with SARS or MERS or some of these other viruses. HIV is an example. HIV has been around. These retroviruses have been around way before the HIV epidemic was diagnosed in the early 1980s. So the obvious question is, what can we do to prevent it or reduce the risk of exposure? One doesn't have to remember back very far that there were lots of television news reports about people in airports and in China wearing face masks. What, what do we do to prevent this from happening to us, if we even have that control? We don't have the control. This is nature's way of controlling population. In essence, humans go against nature by having developed vaccines, antibiotics, other medical treatments that stall off infection. But this is probably going to happen forever, and what we could do are common-sense things. You notice something different about your body, be evaluated. Vaccines, which people tend to not want to get, are grossly important because not only do you protect yourself, but if you would get infected, you don't infect others. Hand hygiene, which is really underplayed, is a major way that many of these things are spread. And then doing the obvious things of staying away from actively infected people unless you particularly know how their infection can be spread to you or not spread to you. For instance, HIV is really a sexually transmitted disease for all intents and purposes in this country right now. You can still get it by using infected needles, but that's intravenous drug use, which is not a common thing in the population per se. Fascinating, very important, very timely. Larry Bush practices infectious disease medicine in Palm Beach County in Florida, and we thank you so much, sir, for giving us this overview. It's, um, again, to use the word again, it's very timely. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.